We're back, and it's a pleasure to say we are joined once again by Dr. Darren Beatty. He is a former professor uh, at Duke University who became a speechwriter and policy advisor to Donald Trump at the White House during the previous administration. He went on to found and become the editor of a marvelous investigative journalist program called Revolver.News. Um, in connection with which he has been doing absolutely stupendously important work trying to get to the truth about what actually happened on January 6th at the United States Capitol. Uh, Darren Beatty, it's so good to have you back. Uh, Happy New Year to you, sir. And um, we're marking this week the first anniversary of the events you've been covering so splendidly. And um, thank you again for all you're doing in that regard. My pleasure. Thanks for having me back. I'm delighted to do so because uh, there are more insights that you have been bringing to our attention about who brought us this uh, event, this so-called insurrection in the Capitol. And I'd like you to just, uh, you know, give us again a short primer on what we actually know now about things like um, this fellow Ray Epps and the role that he was playing in inciting people to go into the Capitol and the role that uh, we have reason to believe the FBI may have played in some of that, and the lack of preparedness of the Capitol Police to deal with any kind of um, uh, event like that which went down on the 6th. Well, there's a lot to cover. Um, I suppose for listeners who aren't aware, a good place to start is to apprise them of the Michigan kidnapping plot. This really, I think, sets the context for understanding January 6th and for understanding all of the bizarre fact patterns, including the egregious and really inexplicable pattern of selective non-prosecution in January 6th, where some of the most egregious actors involved remain uncharged, untouched, even uncertain, and the little fish are given extremely draconian treatment to the point of rotting away in solitary confinement in other cases. So how do we explain that? What could motivate our intuition for understanding this bizarre fact pattern of selective non-prosecution of which we can go into specific cases in detail? Well, the Michigan case happened just months before January 6th. It made the news everywhere. In fact, I would imagine many of your readers would recall. You go to the news, it says, oh, Trump supporters try to kidnap the governor of Michigan. Oh, this is the most, you know, this is the scariest example of potential domestic terror in a long time since 9-11, yada, yada, the same stuff. And so what happened? And this well, was shortly before the November election. This was, this was just, yeah. This was just months before January 6th. And so what did this so-called Michigan kidnapping plot entail? Well, one, it involved a plot that we're going to sound familiar to the audience, storming the state capitol. It involved a plot to storm the Michigan state capitol. Um, Most of the so-called plotters involved are associated with a militia group called the Three Percenters which is one of the three main militia groups also imputed 
to the events of 1-6. In the case of the Michigan plot, however, we now know for a fact that 12 out of the 26 so-called plotters are either informants or actual agents of the government. And in fact, it's come out that the behavior of the agents has been so egregious that it's a major feature of the defense strategy in the Michigan cases to make it entrapment defense on the basis of the egregious behavior of all of these informants and agents in the case. Oh, yes. And, and one last detail that I think many listeners will find arresting and interesting. The head of the FBI Detroit field office who ran this infiltration operation, the day after the so-called plotters, an overwhelming percentage of whom turned out to be informants and direct feds, the day after the so-called plotters are arrested, FBI Director Ray promotes the guy who ran this operation in Michigan. His name is Stephen D'Antuono, head of the Detroit field office. He's promoted to the D.C. field office where he goes on to oversee the January 6th investigation. And so you have pretty remarkable parallels to start with. Just months before, you have what basically looks like a dress rehearsal for January 6th. You have basically the same plans, storming the state capitol, you have the same, you know, one of the same main militia groups. You have the same guy in the sense that the FBI director who oversaw this infiltration operation was very quickly and quietly, I'll add, promoted to the D.C. field office to oversee the January 6th investigation. And you have all of this just a month before the case of January 6th. And what's remarkable is the official position of FBI Director Ray was that when he was asked by Amy Klobuchar, don't you just kick yourself that you had no intelligence, you had no idea anything would happen? Well, his organization ran an infiltration operation into a similar plot to storm the Capitol just months before. And of course, now we know there's a Newsweek piece that, uh, that ran uh, just yesterday saying that there is just uh, some extraordinary operation uh, authorized by the Department of Justice, whereby the DOJ claimed to have intelligence of a possible weapon of mass destruction. And so the acting AG authorized a top secret shoot to kill commando force to be operationalized in D.C. on January 6th. So we know that they had intelligence of something in advance. We know from the New York Times, by the way, that there were people in the Capitol texting their FBI handlers in real time throughout the entire. And so those two things already call into severe suspicion. It's not downright exposes a lie. FBI directors claim that, oh, we just had no idea. And contextually, we see this Michigan place involving the same plot involving the same militia group, involving the same people that infiltrated by the FBI to the percentage that 12 out of the 26 people implicated were either informants or FBI agents. Yeah. So this that, I think... stunning on so many different levels, Darren Beatty. And again, I, I 
so appreciate your ferreting out this information for one thing and then helping connect the proverbial dots on it because it is simply not being done by just about anybody else. And I wanted to ask you specifically about this question. If, as you say, the FBI would have handlers for people inside the Capitol with whom they were in text communications during the event, this certainly bespeaks a level of involvement by the Bureau um, before the events and knowledge of them as well. And you spoke of intelligence being available, possibly even of a weapon of mass destruction being used. Surely the congressional leadership would have been apprised of these threats, would they not? And a question that we touched on but didn't have a chance to visit at length with you about in our last call, Darren, was did the government's congressional leadership have foreknowledge of all of this? And if so, how could they possibly not have insisted that the um, level of protection of the Capitol be heightened? If anything, as I understand it, it was actually less than was normal in right. the course of well, this event. That's, that's a great question. As to the specific knowledge or lack thereof on the part of congressional leadership, that's an area that I can't really speak to with any confidence. It's not been a subject of my research, so I can only speculate. But what I can say is that it's already bizarre, just from the very beginning, it's already bizarre that on this highly politically charged day where everyone knows there's going to be a rally nearby, um, the United States Capitol building enjoys uniquely poor security. Now, now that we know on the basis of the Newsweek report that just came out yesterday that the DOJ, the acting head of the DOJ, unilaterally authorized this top secret shoot to kill commando force on the basis of alleged intelligence of a major terrorist threat. Um, maybe they communicated that to the Capitol police. Maybe they communicated that to congressional leadership. Maybe not. But a major law enforcement agency was allegedly privy to these threats. Maybe they're making up these threats, but they claim that now we know that they authorized the shoot to kill commando force on the basis of some extraordinary threat. And yet that threat perception did not translate into even ordinary day-to-day -day level securities at the Capitol. Yet another data point that I, one more data point that I think people find compelling, and we cover this in the context of covering a specific individual who's one of the handful of egregious actors early on on January 6th who cut down fencing methodically, who played a decisive role in setting the conditions for this rally to turn into a riot, and he's curiously uncharged, unindicted, and so forth. We know in this particular individual, known to researchers as the black ski mask uh, individual, we know that the feds know who he is because the feds actually stopped him in a van, colloquially known as the Trump hippie van. He was stopped in a van on January 5th outside of the Department of Justice in a van with other alleged supposed Trump supporters. And in the van, there were firearms and explosives. Uh, the cops stopped and there were cop cars all over the place. Weirdly, the media, who would seem to have all the interest in the world in covering a case of potential Trump supporter terrorist event on January 6th, the media was curiously 
pretty silent on this to the point that most Americans don't even know that this happened. The cops stopped them. They processed this guy, and that was it. So that's another data point. You have a van of alleged Trump supporters. The van says, stop the steal, that stopped right in front of the Justice Department with guns and explosives. And that, in addition to everything else, doesn't justify normal levels of security at the Capitol. Yeah, it, let alone it heightened ones. A, it doesn't make any sense. This doesn't pass the smell test, I think, is the point. And Darren, I guess I'm pressing on this because my working assumption is that none of this could possibly be true, that that there were all of these indicators of serious problems, potentially at least, and the congressional leadership wasn't informed, and that the police uh, of the Capitol weren't on a heightened state of alert as a result, and instead they were actually on a diminished status, uh, just, uh, again, is completely preposterous. And and so it brings me to this question. To, no, I mean, to- I think that, yeah, that's very, very possible um, my sense, and again, I, I, I need to be very careful about what my level of certainty is, because on things that you know, I'm very confident about, um, I have to you know, protect that level of certainty. So when I go into a speculative domain, I need to be very clear about that. So um, yeah, I'm not conflating different things. But my sense, just as a matter of intuition for how this may have played out, is um, it could be the case that you had, you know, congressional leadership like coordinating with various law enforcement agencies and so forth. My sense rather is that people have a way of reading between the lines. And I think there was a definite sense communicated, at least tacitly, that we don't want a lot of security on this day. So leave it alone. And I think the relevant people knew to play ball and not ask any questions further. Well, I very much appreciate your point about segregating out what your research and analysis and sources have essentially given you very high confidence about and that that you're making informed judgments about. Um, but the further you know data point is there were, not in every case, obviously, but in at least some cases, as I understand it, Darren Beatty, doors of the Capitol that were opened by the police to the outside crowd um, and that at least they gave the impression that they were allowing people in, if not actually inviting them. Again, a a practice that I've got to believe somebody north of those police officers at those doors uh, made the decision to do. Do we know much about that? Absolutely. I don't know much about that. The opening of the doors is an area that is not, you know, there's so many different dimensions to this. That specific thing is not something that we've covered in tremendous detail in Revolver. But we, what we have covered, which is the subject of our major recent bombshell report, is the preliminary steps to that happening. Before you have people at the Capitol doors, perhaps feeling invited, you have people feeling invited to the Capitol grounds as such. And that's a very important point because anyone just loitering around, standing around the Capitol building at that day was technically committing a criminal offense. And I would be willing to say that 99% at least of the people there didn't know it. Why didn't they know it? 
because before Trump's speech even ended, this is around, you know, noon, 1230 and so forth. You have a number of actors at the scene of the Capitol by the peace monument, cutting down fencing, methodically removing fence, thereby creating effectively this enormous booby trap whereby the people coming to the Capitol from the Trump speech subsequently are going to see the Capitol grounds, which ordinarily is open to the public. It's only on that day that there was a special enhanced restricted perimeter. But they wouldn't even have been aware of that because the relevant fencing was methodically cut and removed before they even got there. By, among others, this guy with the black ski mask. And apparently, according to your reporting at Revolver.News, Darren Beatty, at the Express urging the exhortation of a fellow who it sounds as though was working with the FBI by the name of Ray Epps. And we're we're not going to have time to get into this at further detail. I would commend to our listeners our earlier conversation with you late last year uh, that has a lot of detail about Epps and what you've discovered about him and what he was doing on video the night before the attack, the day of, in the immediate run-up to it, and all the rest. Fantastically important reporting, Darren. But I did want to just ask you, we're being told that the committee that has been established by Nancy Pelosi is about to hold a massive set of hearings to validate the official narrative that this was an insurrection, that it was mounted by Trump supporters, it was intent on overthrowing the government of the United States. Um, And I am certain that none of the questions that I've just put to you will be taken up by that committee. Um, What do you expect is going to come out of this? Is it just going to be a whitewash and um, further obscure the reality that you have uncovered? Yes. Well, the committee is certainly a politicized one, and it speaks to the purpose of this whole, in my view, fundamentally false event in the first place. You know, if, if it's true that the FBI or other government operatives played a key role in engineering this event. It wasn't just because they thought it would be fun. Events like this create the pretext for certain narratives and policy agendas. And the narrative is that Trump supporters or anyone who's adjacent to Trump politically or anyone who objects to basically the direction of the current regime in America is a de facto domestic terrorist on the basis of those beliefs. And secondly, and as follows, the government is justified in marshalling the full weight of its national security apparatus domestically in order to silence, press, and ultimately crush this alleged national security threat coming from Trump supporters. So this- An instrument of political warfare, in other words, of of the first order and being wielded as such um, deliberately by people who are in power today and intend to remain in power. Darren Beatty, thank you very much for your time today. I know that you're wildly busy. Uh, Next up, we'll speak with Lieutenant General Rod Bishop, United States Air Force retired. 